Be seated. I would invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Kings chapter 20. Today we're going to be reading verses 1 through 21 as we continue on in the Word of God in the book of 1 Kings. You remember in the previous weeks we've been looking particularly at the ministry now of the prophet Elijah. And we saw after his mountaintop victory how there was no great reformation and revival, unfortunately, in the northern kingdom in Samaria. And instead, uh, we saw him fleeing, even after that great victory over the prophets of Baal given by God, the burning up of the sacrifice. We saw him fleeing as far south as he could get. He fled through Israel and into Judah and then into the wilderness. And the Lord met him there and he told him to turn around, go back. He reminded him that he had still 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal and that his sovereignty still prevailed in the earth, that all was not lost, and that he needed to go back and minister. So he went back and he anointed Elisha to be his successor. And uh, now the the view has turned away from Elijah to uh, Elijah's um, adversary, or one of Elijah's adversaries, uh, a man who should not have been his adversary, but a man who should have been uh, welcoming his, his prophetic office within his kingdom, and that was, of course, Ahab, the wife of, or rather wife, there's a Freudian slip, the husband of uh, Queen Jezebel, the Baal worshiper, the Sidonian princess that had done such evil in the land. We're going to see now how uh, the Lord intervenes to save this wicked nation quite probably for the sake of uh, not just his promises, but also for the sake of the worshipers of the Lord who still remained within that nation. But before we turn our attention to the word of the Lord, let us turn our attention to the Lord of the word, and let's ask for his blessing. Please join me. God, our gracious Father, I pray now, Lord, that you would guide me as I open up your word to your people. I pray, Lord, that hard things would become simple that we would understand the context of these verses and understand how you are sovereign in all of them and that we would be able to apply these these lessons to our own age. For sometimes, Lord, we too find ourselves at wit's end or fearful or looking simply at numbers and thinking, O Lord, all is lost. Help us to understand, though, that you are the Lord who is sovereign over the numbers, Lord and that victory does not come by horses or chariots or today main battle tanks and attack helicopters. It comes by your hand. Yours is the battle, O Lord. Remind us of that even as we read. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. 1 Kings chapter 20 and verses 1 through 21. Now Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his forces together. Thirty-two kings were with him with horses and chariots, and he went up and besieged Samaria and made war against it. Then he sent messages into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine, your loveliest wives and children are mine. And the king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, just as you say, I and all that I have are yours. Then the messengers came back and said, Thus speaks Ben-Hadad, saying, Indeed, I have sent to you, saying, You shall deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. But I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants. And it shall be that whatever is pleasant in your eyes, they will put it in their hands and take it. So the king of Israel 
called all the elders of the land and said, Notice, please, and see how this man seeks trouble. For he sent to me for my wives, my children, my silver, and my gold, and I did not deny him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. Therefore he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, All that you sent for to your servant the first time I will do, but this last thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought back word to him. Then Ben-Hadad said to him and said, The gods do so to me and more also, if enough dust is left of Samaria for a handful for each of the people who follow me. So the king of Israel answered and said to him, Tell him, let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. And it happened when Ben-Hadad heard this message, as he and the kings were drinking at the command post, that he said to his servants, Get ready! And they got ready to attack the city. Suddenly, a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So Ahab said, By whom? And he said, Thus says the Lord by the young leaders of the provinces. Then he said, Who will set the battle in order? And he answered, You. Then he mustered the young leaders of the provinces, and there were 232. And after them he mustered all the people, all the children of Israel, 7,000. So they went out at noon. Meanwhile, Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings helping him were getting drunk at the command post. The young leaders of the provinces went out first. And Ben-Hadad sent out a patrol, and they told him, saying, Men are coming out of Samaria. So he said, If they have come out for peace, take them alive. And if they have come out for war, take them alive. When these young leaders of the provinces went out of the city with the army which followed them, and each one killed his man, so the Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. And Ben-Hadad the king of Syria escaped on a horse with his cavalry. Then the king of Israel went out and attacked the horses and chariots and killed the Syrians with a great slaughter. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. One of the many benefits of uh, traveling to Israel is that you can't fail to be reminded as you go about various locations within Israel that the Bible is actually, it's actually history. It's not merely tales told uh, like the Brothers Grimm stories or, you know, once upon a time there was a place and so on. Rather, these were things that happened in actual kingdoms to actual people in actual places. You go to city after city, site after site, and you see all the physical evidence of, of the nations and the kings and the scribes and the prophets that you read about in the Bible. And that that evidence keeps accumulating. For instance, one of the wonderful things that uh, has happened of late in the 20th century was they found more and more of these little bulla, which are seals of the various leaders. Whenever they sent a message, they would attach a clay seal to it to indicate who had, who had issued it and the authority that it was issued with. And they found seals for so many of the different leaders of the Bible, the various scribes and the, uh, the second-in-commands and the kings and even prophets who were mentioned within the Bible. They found these bulla indicating these messages. Now, when we went to Israel in March, Joy and I were uh, blessed to be able to travel through many of the areas that we're going to be discussing as we go through the end of First Kings in the Northern Kingdom, uh, the place that you and I know from the New Testament as Galilee, particularly around the Sea of Galilee, which is that little light blue thing coming from the Jordan River, snaking down through uh, Israel there. 
Um, and as we stood on the Golan Heights, uh, which are actually in the, it's to the east of the Sea of Galilee, it's the, uh, the mountainous plain, so to speak, that overlooks all of Israel, which is much further below it, you, uh, you just can't imagine how many biblical sites you were looking at. Not only have you got the entire Sea of Galilee, and you can imagine the cities that were around it, like Capernaum, one of the cities that we uh, visited, but also you look a little further and you see other locations, uh, and you're immediately reminded, or at least I was immediately reminded of various stories in the New Testament and the Old Testament. Uh, and in fact, I, I remember standing there and thinking, I, I lost count in my head of all the locations of biblical uh, history that I could literally see from the standpoint where I was in a kibbutz looking over uh, the Sea of Galilee. It's an amazing experience. And incidentally, standing up there on those commanding heights, you instantly understand why modern-day Israel doesn't want to give it back to, to Syria. It really does give you a commanding view of the entire nation. And uh, you put artillery or, or nasty rockets and things like that up there, and uh, you could make things very, very uncomfortable. But at the time of 1 Kings 20, the place where I was standing was controlled by wicked King Ahab, or at least in name, it was still part of the northern kingdom of Israel, but only just. Uh, For as you can see in the text, as we started out, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, desperately wanted to control all of Israel and all of that area, and indeed, all of Samaria. He wanted simply to make it his own, and he had mobilized a massive army to take it. He had invaded, and he had come to the walls of Samaria. Now, Samaria is very well situated. Uh, the kings of Israel, uh, Omri himself, who had built it, the king of Ahab, had placed, uh, the king of Ahab, the father of Ahab, had placed it in a very strategic location. It, uh, it, it was on a commanding height, but an army as large as that of Ben-Hadad would eventually break down the walls, would eventually destroy the capital, would seize it if it was simply a matter of time. Now, it's important to remember that this Ben-Hadad that we read about in 1 Kings 20 is not the Ben-Hadad from 1 Kings 15, whom Asa paid off to attack Baasha, the king of Israel, many years before. This is Ben-Hadad II, who was the king of Aram at Damascus between 865 and 842 B.C., The name Ben-Hadad, incidentally, uh, is kind of like Herod in the New Testament. It shows up again and again, and there's a reason for that. It literally means son of Hadad. Hadad was a uh, false Aramean rain god. He was the equivalent of Baal, the Canaanite rain god. So the kings of Aram, like many Near Eastern kings at the time, what were they doing? They were claiming divine ancestry. I am uh, the, the offspring in some sense of Hadad. I am his representative here on earth. Uh, also confusing in the text, and I, this, I can't tell you how many times this tripped me up the first time I was reading through uh, the Old Testament, so I want to hopefully clear some of the, uh, the difficulties away from you, or for you as you go through it, uh, is the use of the name Syria, okay? That's very confusing. The kingdom of Aram, or uh, Aram Damascus, as modern historians call it, was located where the modern kingdom of Syria currently is. It's that, uh, it's the, the weird blue. You know, why is it Guys, you know, my wife will go into uh, the, uh, the, you know, the, the lows and be familiar with all of these different shades and able to describe them. I've got like blue, lightish blue. There's slightly darker blue. Then there's this kind of, you know, I, I have no, 
So that blue, what, what is that blue, the one with Damascus? Anybody? Science. Blue, science. <laughs> Got all these colorblind guys, it's like blue, blue. There's, there's large, dark blue. And, thanks, that's, that's a big help, yeah. All right, so whatever that blue is over there, that's the, can, that's the uh, kingdom of Aram Damascus, uh, as they put it. And it's uh, located where the modern kingdom of Syria is. And of course, Damascus is still the capital of Syria. Directly to the north of Syria is the Assyrian Empire, which is where you get that confusion, the, re- the repetition of Syria and Assyrian. Um, and the capital of the Assyrian Empire, of course, was not Damascus. It was Nineveh. The Assyrians in the north, the Assyrian Empire, would eventually crush the kingdom of Aram, and then they would come through and they would end up crushing the northern kingdom as well. There, I've given you spoilers, I'm sorry, but moving on. Uh, And then eventually, the Assyrians themselves would be destroyed by the Babylonian Empire. So remember that the Arameans are Syrian, but the Assyrians are Mesopotamian, if that's close enough. So... If you could see the Assyrian Empire the, uh, uh, from this slide, you can. It would stretch all the way down here and then into the Euphrates and the Tigris, the area of modern Iraq that, uh, that you know. So why was, was Ben-Hadad, though, or Ben-Hadad all fired up to conquer Samaria? Well, aside from the fact that that was what kings did at the time, you know, they, they existed to increase the size of their nations and the amount of wealth they had, that, and they expanded their wealth and their land and, and their tax base by taking the land of weaker nations around them. That's what they did. But Ben-Hadad also had a real problem. The Assyrians were pressing down upon him on the north, and they had also cut off all of his northern trade routes. So an important source of, of, of revenue year-round had been cut off. So now if he wanted to trade with the Phoenicians, who are over here, or if he wanted to trade with the Egyptians, who were down there, or if he wanted to trade with the Arabs, Nabataeans, who were down here, he was going to have to go through Israel. There was, simply, there was simply no other way. So he was determined to knock the much, much weaker kingdom to his south, ruled by Ahab, out of the running. And to assist them with that, he had this coalition of equally desperate kingdoms. Usually these would be little cities in the surrounding areas around them, but these desperate vassal kings who were also under pressure by the Assyrians. So he had formed a confederation, and the first thing that they were going to do was they were simply going to take Israel out of the picture. He doesn't want an alliance with Israel. Uh, He doesn't merely want another vassal king. He needs to be able to move through their territory whenever he wants. And so he invades the country. He makes his way all the way to Samaria. There is no army in Israel sufficient to stop him. And he is massively confident that he can crush them in battle, that he can take Samaria with very little difficulty because his army dwarfs that of Ahab. And Ahab, we need to remember, is also not like his father Omri. Omri had quite the reputation in the ancient Near East as a great military commander. Uh, But Ahab, on the other hand, this is a man who lets Jezebel rule the roost. And as we shall see later on, he can't even take a vineyard without help. So we are not talking about a great military commander or a decisive man. So Ben-Hadad, who is now just outside of Samaria, you know, at the bottom of the hill, so to speak, sends a letter to him, demanding everything he has. He says, your silver and your gold are mine, your loveliest wives and your children are mine. Now imagine receiving that letter from one of your enemies. Everything you own, including your wife and your kids, that's mine. I own it. And Ahab 
looking out at this vast army, of course, that's surrounding him. He assumes this groveling kind of vassal position, and he, he, he sends this very groveling letter back to him, saying, uh, yes, it is as you say. All of these things are yours, O king. Essentially, he's saying, okay, you can, you can rule over us. We'll be your vassal. I'll send in tribute on a regular basis. But Ben-Hadad was probably privately disappointed at that, uh, at that response, you know, because he wanted him to say, why, how dare you? And, you know, uh, I'll be out to attack you tomorrow. Um, what does it take to get this guy to come outside the walls and go to war, uh, which is obviously what he's trying to prompt him to. So he sends messengers back with a further provocation. I'm sending my servants tomorrow to ransack your city and take everything you have that's worth having away, including all of your people. Um, and this is designed to cause him to finally go out to fight. Uh, he wants to depose Ahab with good reason at this point in time. Ahab realizes he can't simply send another groveling reply back to him. He's been, you know, finally edged into the corner. So he gathers the elders, and he sets the matter before them, and he, he, uh, he tells them, Ben-Hadad doesn't just want our goods. Ben-Hadad wants the entire kingdom. That's essentially what he sets before them. And the people realize that they, they can't just simply readily consent it would be you know, to impoverish themselves and to put themselves at the mercy of this, this foreign nation. But still, he, he sends back a, a relatively polite message. I'm, I'm willing to pay tribute to you, but this thing you ask, I'm sorry, I, I cannot do. I just, you know, it's beyond our ability. Sorry. Uh, so Ben-Hadad invokes the names of his false gods, and then in true epic trash talking, you know, like before a, a WWE fight or you know, even a, a middle-weight or, middle or MMA fight, he, he claims he's going to smash the capital so badly there won't even be dust left. I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to destroy you so badly there won't even leave dust left in the place where you were standing. <laughs> you know, basically doing that kind of thing. And then Ahab eventually comes back. He comes back, though, with a fairly good rejoinder. It's, uh, oh, yeah, tell him, let not the man who puts on his armor, that is, gets ready for battle, Boast like the man who's taking it off, having already won the battle. You're acting like it's a, a done deal. We'll see about that. But honestly, I mean, think about it. At this point, what hope does he have? The Lord God had told the people before they even entered the land that he would be their sure defense if they remained loyal to him. He had told them before they went in, your, your strength is not going to be in walls. Your strength is not going to be in chariots. It's not going to be in mighty men. It's not going to be in horses. Your strength is going to be found in me or it's not going to be found at all. If you trust in me, as he puts it in Zechariah, I'll be a wall of fire around you. Nobody will be able to touch you. You're the apple of my eye. But if you are faithless and disloyal, it won't matter how large your army is. They'll trample all over you. And they had abandoned him, the northern kingdom. They'd even introduced Baal worship. It wasn't just even the false worship of the, of the golden idols. Now they had Baal worship. Uh, the Lord had warned them, if they did this kind of thing, that he would cause their enemies to plunder them. And that is exactly what's happening. But Ben-Hadad is so confident of his victory that he doesn't even really have a strategy. He's just pulled up to the walls and he spends the, you know, the, the initial part of the siege. It's obviously not a very good siege because they can exit the city without great difficulty. He spends the initial part of the campaign drinking. In essence, acting like it's, it's a foregone decision. It's rather like the, um, 
before the Battle of uh, First Bull Run, Manassas, the, the dignitaries from Washington came out with picnic baskets and, and wine, and they, uh, they sat about the battlefield, you know, waiting to see uh, the Union armies accomplish a great victory. They thought it would be a walkover. A little later on, they were horrified to be running with the, uh, as the, the bluecoats streamed back towards Washington, uh, D.C., we need not uh, conclude that the battle is over before it's even been fought. But when he receives Ahab's reply, he essentially tells his men to prepare to attack the city. One uh, fanciful commentator, uh, taking the translation a little far, says, prepare the battering rams, is, is basically what he said. You know, So they, they go charging towards the city, uh, but then they notice that the, the Sumerians are coming out. Well, what's happened? Well, it should have been that the tiny army of the northern kingdom... 7,000 troops in all, would be smashed by this great uh, Aramean horde. Now, it's interesting that the, the number is 7,000 in the army. A lot of uh, people have, uh, interpreters and commentators, have seen that there's a link between uh, the 7,000 Israelite soldiers mentioned in verse 15 to the number 7,000 that was mentioned by God when he was speaking to Elijah. I have yet 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, Given that uh, Hadad is a version of Baal, it is possible that this was hearkening to the victory that he was about to give this, uh, the, the people and that he had, uh, he had foreshadowed that earlier. I don't know whether that's uh, exactly it. I can't say dogmatically, but I'd like to think it's, there's some truth to it. But in any event, uh, at that moment of their seeming destruction, a prophet appears in the midst of Samaria, and he comes boldly up to the king. This is probably one of the prophets that Obadiah had hidden, and he tells the king, thus says the Lord, have you seen this great multitude? How could you avoid it? They're all around you. Behold, I will deliver into your hand today, it into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now, Ahab, you remember, had been on Mount Carmel. He'd seen what the Lord could do. He understood the Lord's power. It's amazing. This is the same God he will not bow before but he understands how mighty this God is. And so he listens. He grasps at that straw that's been offered to him. And when he's told that the horde that he sees before him is going to be delivered into his hands, he says, by who? In other words, by, by what means will they, be, will they be destroyed? And he's told that the young leaders of the provinces need to go out first. They are the ones who will deliver this giant army into the hands of God's people. Now, this is surprising. He doesn't say, gather all of your greatest veterans. Gather your champions. Gather your princes, Ahab. It'll be your princes, you and your princes, against him and his princes. That's not what he says. He says, send out the young leaders from the provinces. Send out the young Davids to go fight this Goliath once again. Their spearhead would have numbered thousands. Israel's spearhead numbers 232 men. That's less than Gideon's 300 being sent out of the city gates. And when the Arameans report them, uh, Ben-Hadad is not sure, is this another delegation coming out sending, you know, asking for peace? What, what's going on here? But uh, he is, at that point, obviously he's been drinking copiously, and he assumes that this is no problem at all. He says, if they've come out for peace, take him prisoner. If they've come out for a war, take a prisoner too. I mean, how difficult is this? Come on. So it's ridiculous. But to their horror, 
As the 232 men meet the men who are supposed to be taking them prisoner, each one of them kills his Syrian counterpart. There's, there's, you know, they just, it, it's over in a few seconds, and then they keep flooding on. And this starts a rout amongst the Syrians that is so bad that eventually Ben-Hadad and his, his troops, his cavalry, barely escape. And in the pursuit that comes after that, thousands of Syrians are killed. Their, their army is decimated, not utterly destroyed, but nonetheless, it is very, very badly damaged. So what happened? I mean, by, by sheer numbers, they were supposed to, they were supposed to win. But here's the thing. This kind of thing, when it happens to God's people, has happened again and again and again in history. Remember, Goliath was supposed to beat David. The Midianites were supposed to crush Gideon and his men. Antiochus was supposed to beat the Maccabees. The Sanhedrin was certainly supposed to defeat Jesus. The Roman Empire was supposed to beat a bunch of fishermen preaching the gospel. The Holy Roman Empire was supposed to crush the Reformation. The Spanish Armada was supposed to overwhelm Protestant England and so on. By sheer numbers, by mathematics, it should have been the case that God's people lost in every single one of those conflicts because they were overwhelmingly overmatched. And yet, what are numbers to the God who created the heavens and the earth? All they had was a massive physical strength advantage, but they lost. Why was that? Well, it was because, as David told Goliath, the battle is the Lord's. There is an overwhelming power that is on the side of God's people, one that simply cannot be matched by creatures. Do you realize this? When the Lord is with you, you are in the majority no matter how many are opposed to you. I can't tell you how often I have seen Christians forgetting that. They look at the society, we do the mathematics, we recognize that we are the minority, and we are, you know, as Reformed believers, we are a minority within a minority, and we say, what can we do? We can't contend with powers like this, and we immediately, we switch over, don't we, to compromise, to sending out, you know, letters. It, and that's, it's ridiculous, but I've seen it. I've send, seen churches, denominations, essentially trying to send letters to the culture, like, like Ahab sent to Ben-Hadad. We're your servants. Well, you know, come on, just come to some sort of compromise with us. And the letters we get back are, everything you have is ours. We'll take your properties. We'll take your children. We'll take all of these things. They already belong to us. <laughs> we say, what can we do? We'll have to make some sort of further compromise. <laughs> All we've got is God. And they've got stuff. <laughs> and lots. And money. <sighs> it, it's absurd. It's absurd how dispirited we become just because numbers are against us. But I have seen the overwhelming power of the Lord Jesus Christ in my own life again and again. I have seen things that uh, it triumphs one that, that should not have been won if we're going simply by, by numbers or power or so on. Because we are dealing with a power that can change everything in a second because he holds eternity in his hand. 
He's the one who directs the heart of the king. He is the one who has determined from the very beginning what will happen. And it unfolds. And therefore, we who are his people should be, in an eternal sense, although we may be frightened at times, we should be anxious for nothing, ultimately, because we know what happens, don't we? We know the end from the beginning, and it's a pity we've forgotten that. Uh, So often, I I look at things, and I I see what what kind of opportunities there could have been if only we, as as a people and a nation, had trusted in the Lord. I hate to say this, but I, I, was, I was talking, I was, it brought to mind because I was talking with a brother in the, in the church who was in Afghanistan for many years. What might 20 years of gospel preaching have affected in Afghanistan that vast quantities of blood and gold never could? There's a power to the gospel that men know nothing of that can change everything radically. I mean, it was not ultimately armies that overthrew the Roman Empire for Christianity. It was the preaching, often of slaves, of simple men and women, and their willingness to stand in the face of evil and to render good when evil was rendered towards them. Over time, they broke down the mighty empire, and they made it Christian. But the the power of the Lord and his fulfilling of promises is something that we have to trust in for the future, else we have no hope. It is God's work that will be done ultimately by his church, or we are laboring in vain. If we are not doing things according to his will, his way, trusting in him, and by the letter of his word, then we're doing it the wrong way. It's the sovereignty of God, this overwhelming power that he brings, uh, and my confidence in him, my absolute confidence in him, it's why I'm willing to engage in battles where I'm, in a material sense, overmatched without waiting for you know, the material stuff to, to arrive. Spurgeon put it very well when he said this, if we are indeed contending for truth and righteousness, let us not tarry till we have talent or wealth or any form of visible power at our disposal. But with such stones as we find in the brook and with our own usual sling, let us run to meet the enemy. If it were our own battle, we might not be confident. But if we are standing up for Jesus and warring in his strength alone, who can withstand us? Without a trace of hesitancy, let us face the Philistines, for the Lord of hosts is with us. And who can be against us? The same power that animated David on that day when he was facing down the Philistine giant, that is the power of the Lord, is within you, believers. It is not that you are David, okay? If there's, if there's a wonderful little mug, if somebody wants to buy it for me, I'd be very, very grateful. It's, it's David and Goliath, and it's got Goliath and then not you over David. <laughs> that really is the case. But understand this, the same Lord who was sovereign on that battlefield is sovereign on this battlefield. And as we'll see next week, sovereign in the battlefields of your life, your family, your denomination, wherever you are. God, there he is, and he is sovereign, and his will will be done. And remember this, the Lord will always preserve a remnant. He will always protect his people, and Christ will give his church the final victory. Let's end on that note, if I would. If you can turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation 19.11. I want you to see how things end. And I want you to see the emphasis on, 
on how final and how decisive and how quick it is. There are some who would call this the last battle, but it's, as we'll see, not a battle. The Lord speaks and it's over. I'm reading now Revelation 19 and starting with verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh." Brothers and sisters, as sure as Ben-Hadad's army was destroyed outside Syria in that little mini-apocalypse, in fact, even more surely because his wasn't utterly destroyed, the day is coming when those who stand against the Lamb will be utterly ruined, and that forever. On the last day, be sure you're standing with the right army. If you aren't following the Lamb, you're on the wrong side. But here's the wonderful news. I was once on the wrong side. Saul was once on the wrong side before he became the apostle Paul. Everyone born into this world is born headed in the wrong direction. And that is why the Lord offers his mercy. He offers you the opportunity to join the right army. And so I would say to you, take that offer. Follow the lamb. Take up your cross and follow him and be victorious on the last day. Let's go before him. God, our Father, we do thank you that you are the God who does the impossible. Lord, if we look merely at numbers, we might despair. But help us to remember that he who is within us is greater than he who is in the world. Help us to stand firm in the evil day and to do so confidently. Let us give an answer for the hope that we have with gentleness and respect whenever we are compelled to do so. Let us not be uh, people who compromise, who are always hiding our faith, who are always seeking to make friends with people who don't want to be our friends, who want to conquer us entirely, like like Ben-Hadad wanted to conquer Israel. Remind us of that, Lord. Remind us there's nothing to be gained by bowing the knee before the forces of the beast. Let us therefore, O Lord, stand firm and let us go triumphantly in the name of the Lord. We pray.